If you could travel to any point in time, when would you go? Where would you go to? You know, would you, would you go to the past? Maybe you'd go to, to prehistory and witness the drawing of those first cave drawings. Or, or you'd go to some of the ancient civilizations and find out just how they actually did build the pyramids, because that's a great mystery. Uh, or you'd, maybe you could go visit some great figure in history or, or, or you know, an artist or something, uh, Mozart, Abraham Lincoln, something like that. Or maybe you'd go to a personal history. You know, go see your great, great, great grand father or mother, uh, and, and kind of see where it is that you come from. Or maybe, maybe you'd go to the future, yeah? Kind of see, like, what, what kind of future technology might come into existence? What does life look like there? Uh, what will the, the future of the environment look like? Who, who knows? You know, that those are big questions that we're asking. Or maybe you'd go visit your great-great-great-grandchildren and, and see what, what comes of them. Um, when, when would you go? If you go to any point in history or the future, I guess. Uh, I, I think for myself, I might go back to maybe the, the turn of the 20th century, uh, kind of be- right before 1900s. I love the sort of British literature era that existed during that time. I think that was a lot of fun. Uh, or just after the 1900s, you have this beginning of, of the, the jazz age of music, and I, I just that's, that's my soul music. I just love that. Uh, so that might be when I would go. Uh, but, but I've always been fascinated by this idea of time travel and stuff. I grew up watching Back to the Future. Anyone else enjoy those shows? Yeah, fun times. Um, or every Christmas, we would always uh, hear the story of A Christmas Carol, specifically the Muppets Christmas Carol, which is probably the best telling of that story uh, with some fantastic songs there. Uh, and, and then there's all these great sci-fi action movies between the, the, the Marvel superhero stuff, Star Trek. Uh, I know the reboot was kind of controversial because they did the time travel trick. Where they're like, oh, we'll just change the story because time travel. Um, so that some people feel strongly about that. Uh, all, all kinds of stuff. I've just been fascinated by this and growing up seeing these movies and stuff like that. Um, all right, what is this all about? Uh, this morning, if you want to open up, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Um, and so that's where we'll be if you want to open a Bible up to that. For the past several weeks, we've been talking about remembering God, right? The importance of what remembering means to our faith. Uh, we've said that one of our primary spiritual problems is that we have memory loss, kind of a spiritual memory loss. We're so prone to forget. And yet, when we remember the deeds of the Lord, we've talked about how we can be moved to celebration as we remember him. Uh, this, this moves us to celebrate. And yet, also, in times of mourning and grief and lament, we can call to mind the deeds of the Lord and find hope and help amidst that. These are some of the things we've been talking about. And remembering may be simple enough, but they get a little complicated. Uh, If you remember last week, does anyone remember how we defined hope? Hope is remembering the future. That's what we talked about a little bit last week. And, And with that phrase, hope is remembering the future, it feels a little bit like we might be in the middle of one of those sci fi movies with time travel. Because what, what does this mean, to remember the future? 
And so this morning, what I want to talk about is whether you're interested in time travel or not, I want to suggest that it is actually, in some strange way, a part of who we are as followers of Christ. And what I mean by that is that as we enter the kingdom of God, we enter into eternal time, which isn't just a different kind of quantity of time, time forever, uh, but is actually altogether a different quality of time. And we see this in our text today. Every, every week, we gather around the table of the Lord, the bread and the cup. And I want to suggest that this is sort of kind of a, a spiritual time machine. Follow me here. Uh, bear with me. I'm having fun with it. Let's read our text together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for drawing us into your kingdom, which transcends time and space. God, as we search these scriptures and reflect on your story this morning, I pray that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so, so you might still be rolling your eyes at me. What is all of this about spiritual time travel and communion? Uh, but yes, that's kind of the metaphor I want to play with this morning, uh, is that communion is a kind of spiritual time machine that we travel in together every week. Here, Paul instructs the Corinthian church in communion. And if you really listen to it, it's kind of dizzying. Uh, just how he describes it, how the past, the present, and the future all intersect together. Paul says that he received this teaching from the Lord, which was in the past, and he now hands this teaching to his readers in the present. He says they're to remember Christ's death, which happened in the past, but that as they remember it, they actually await his coming, which is in the future. So this is all kind of happening here stirred up together. We're in the middle of some sort of complicated uh, plot in a spiritual back to the future. And to help us think about this, I want to share a couple of quotes that I've read this week. They're a little lengthy, but I think they actually help uh, with thinking about this. And so the first comes from a theologian named Martha Moore Kish. And this is what she writes. She writes, we commonly picture time as a line stretching from the shadowy past to a shadowy future with our present moment marked with vivid clarity. 
at the center of the diagram. History is linear, and we proceed from one point in time to the next with all the certainty of an inchworm plotting its course along the edge of a leaf. Yet, she writes, Christian faith, and particularly our practice of communion, challenges this view of history. She writes, Since the revelation of God in Christ, we are caught up in God's future here and now. We are tomorrow's people. Each time we sit down together at the Lord's table, we remember the past, we recognize God's presence, and we anticipate the future whenever Christ will be fully revealed in glory to all the world. She writes, past, present, and future are not mutually exclusive phases of history. The power of God's future animates our gatherings even today. And so what she is saying here is that as we come to the table, we remember the past, Christ's death, And yet, just as Paul said, we proclaim it until he comes again and remember the future. Another quote I'd like to share is from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. He is a very prolific writer. Some of you may be familiar with him or some of his books. And he relates communion to the Passover meal, which we've talked about a little bit over the last few weeks, and that's actually where our practice of communion comes from. He writes... To this day, when Jews celebrate the Passover, they don't suppose they're essentially doing something different from that original event. This is the night, they say, when God brought us out of Egypt. The people sitting around the table become not the distant heirs of the wilderness generation, but the very same people. Time and space telescope together, past and present are one, and together they point forward to the still future liberation. And, and we actually kind of talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, the psalm of celebration, and that by the end of that psalm, it wasn't just God delivered them, it was God has delivered us, right? So N.T. Wright goes on to say what happens in communion is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this future dimension of of our liberation is brought sharply into play. We break bread to share in the body of Christ. We do it in remembrance of him, and we become for a moment the disciples sitting around the table at the Last Supper. But he says, if we stop there, we've only actually said half of it. To make any headway in understanding communion, we must see it also as the arrival of God's future in our present moment, not just the extension of God's past into this moment. We do not simply remember a long-since-dead Jesus. We remember the presence of the living Lord. At communion, we are like the children of Israel in the wilderness, tasting fruit plucked from the promised land that they're headed into. It's the future coming to meet us in the present. We can understand communion most fully as the anticipation of the banquet when heaven and earth are made new, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the breaking in of God's future into our present time. And so again, what N.T. Wright is saying in this is that as we come to the table, it's this moment where we remember the past but are also proclaiming the future. 
and actually experiencing a little taste of that future together. And so it's really fun to just read long quotes because uh, that just makes preaching really easy because I can just, just read what, the, what these brilliant people have said. Um, but it certainly boggles the mind, right? It's, it's hard to wrap our minds around this stuff. But, but I want to suggest if hope is what we said it was last week, if it is remembering the future, then communion, the table of the Lord, is the ultimate act of hope. Because in communion, we remember the past of Jesus' death and resurrection, and we proclaim the future of his coming and that he will redeem all things, that he is redeeming all things. And so, in some ways, the table is a time machine. We remember the past, we proclaim the future, and we do all of that in the present moment together. And so for the rest of our time together this morning, I want to kind of try something a little different, and I want to take us all on sort of a a spiritual uh, time-traveling journey together. So join me here. I want to look back on some of the other tables that we join with across time. So let's go back several thousand years to the eve of the Exodus, and just imagine with me a family sitting around the table partaking of the very first Passover meal. For those of you who like to take notes, this story is told in Exodus 12. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to invite us into imagining this scene together. So you have a family about to partake of the very first Passover meal. There's a father, a mother, and their children. So just imagine this. The father of the family has received instructions from Moses and the tribe's elders that every household was to select a special unblemished lamb for dinner that evening. They were to slaughter it at twilight, spread its blood over their doorpost, and then specially prepare it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And when they sat down for dinner, they were to be dressed for travel with shoes on their feet and staff at the ready. Because the word was, they were going to be making a hasty exit in the middle of the night. The word was that Pharaoh was finally going to let them go and send them out of Egypt. And so the father receives all of this information and begins preparations and and tells the mother of the house what to do. And, And so she helps to prepare this special dinner. And... She doesn't complain too much about it because, after all, making bread without having to let it rise is actually pretty easy. Uh, And so this is nice. And she is not too sure about all of this stuff about leaving Egypt, though. Could, Could it possibly be true? After all, strange things have been happening. There were frogs and gnats and flies and thunder and hail and locusts. It's it's been a weird season. But if none of that had changed Pharaoh's mind, then whatever would. And so she kind of thinks, she prepares this meal, that it's just going to be another strange night in the midst of this really strange season. Nothing was really going to change. There's no way they were actually going to get out of Egypt. Now, the children of the family, just imagine with me, they're, they're not really sure what to make of all of this. You know, they had heard that they might be leaving home, maybe at some sort of vacation. They're a little excited about this adventure that they're hearing about. 
But then as they're eating the meal, this bread was flat and kind of tasted funny and they weren't really enjoying that. And also, they're maybe a little bit scared. It's a little spooky. I mean, you have the smell of the blood that has been wiped over the doorpost, wafting through the air. And animal sacrifices weren't uncommon at that time, but it never happened at the house. So this was, this was kind of spooky. And that wasn't the only thing that was scary. They had also heard a rumor that an angel of death was going to be passing through the town that night. So they're a little scared, a little on edge. Well, of course, they're sitting around the table, and the children are whispering about all of this now, the older ones trying to scare the younger one. And then the parents hush them to be quiet. The father says a special blessing, and in his prayer, he mentions something about a Passover, that death was going to pass over their house. And the children pause and go, wait, was that, was that rumor true? After the blessing, the mother tells them to go ahead and eat their bread, even though they're complaining about it. And they're all a little bit uneasy because they're not used to being dressed for travel at the dinner table. None of them is really sure what to think, but they're, they're following these instructions. They're having the Passover meal. And by now it's well past dark and they're finishing up the meal whenever suddenly they they hear something outside the door. And the kids look to each other with fear on their faces. The mother and father look to each other with a bit of muted surprise. And then suddenly the air around them begins to feel cold. There's a chill in the air, goosebumps on their skin. Indeed, some uneasy presence was passing by outside. And then as quickly as it had come, the chill leaves the air. And before they could breathe a sigh of relief, they end up being startled to their feet because they hear a fast knock at the door. And the mother and father look to each other once more. And with a gulp of uncertainty, the father opens the door. And it's one of the elders of the tribe. Your shoes are on. Your staff is ready, he asks. Well, come quickly. Pharaoh is sending us away. Moses and Aaron are leading us out. We're finally free. And so this table, this meal that we're sort of imagining here together, it's filled with uncertainty. It's filled with doubt. It's filled with some measure of disbelief. And yet when we come to the table every week, we sit with these people. And with them, we find the surprise of an unexpected exodus. Let's keep journeying together. Let's fast forward a few thousand years to another Passover meal. This one, if you want to read about it, is in Luke 22. Uh, But again, I just want to invite our imaginations around this evening. Jesus and his disciples had made their way to Jerusalem as was the Jewish custom. The Passover celebrates deliverance out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. So they would always make their way to Jerusalem because that is the pinnacle of the Promised Land. And that's where they would celebrate Passover. And of course, it was a bit of a shame that Jerusalem was occupied and ruled by Romans. 
Because, yes, the, the Romans tolerated Jewish festivals, but Jerusalem only seemed like a partial promised land at this point. But rumor had it, this year would actually be different. God had been doing all kinds of amazing things through this person named Jesus. The blind could see, the lame could walk, demons were being cast out. These were all the signs of the promised coming kingdom that the prophets had talked about. In fact, only a few days ago, Jesus and his disciples had arrived to great fanfare. People lined the streets with their cloaks. They waved palm branches in the air. It was like some sort of rally. They, they threw out the red carpet. They are ready for Israel to be free once more. This time, not from Egypt, but from Rome. Their new king had arrived, and he had come to restore the kingdom, right? And now you would think after all the time that the disciples had spent with Jesus, they would know better than this. After hearing him talk about seeds that must be buried in order to bear fruit, or temples which are going to be torn down in order to be rebuilt, or even the few times that Jesus had actually spelled out his death and resurrection, you would think they would know that the kingdom Jesus has been talking about is an entirely different kind of kingdom. But they don't seem to know any better than the rest of that palm branch crowd. They seem to mostly think it's the same thing, that some new government was going to be set up and Jesus would be their king. And so at dinner that night, the disciples gathered with Jesus to celebrate the Passover around a table and an upper room. And if the family from the dinner scene in Egypt felt uncertain, this scene is almost too certain. The disciples are confident in the coming kingdom. They've been the eyewitnesses of all of this wonder. And they're, they're ready for it. And Jesus breaks bread and passes the cup. And he shares his words that we read together today. But somehow that stuff about body and blood just kind of went in one ear and out the other for the disciples. Because all the disciples seemed to heard was something he said about not having this meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. And then he said something about being betrayed. And those are the two things that the disciples hung on to because right after this meal, they start talking about, oh, I would never betray you, and, and then start comparing themselves saying, well, which one of us is going to be greater in this kingdom? What rank are we going to have in this new government? What office will we be in? And Peter, his voice raises above the rest of them, and he says, Lord, I will never betray you. I will go to prison and even to death for you. And Jesus looks at him, kind of shakes his head. If only they knew what the next few hours was going to hold. So after dinner, Jesus brings his disciples with him to a garden that they often went to together. And Jesus is clearly troubled. His heart is heavy, but his disciples don't seem to notice. While Jesus bends down in prayer, the disciples all nod off in sleep. They're joyful and confident with full bellies and happy hearts, 
So, of course, they're falling asleep. This is the afternoon of Thanksgiving, right? They've had a big meal. They've celebrated. Now it's time to take a nap. Until they are stirred awake at the sound of their friend Judas, who's arriving. And they hadn't noticed him slip away earlier, but now that he was coming back, he wasn't alone. There's a crowd following him. So the disciples jump to their feet because they feel uneasy. They sense a little bit of the threat that might be on the way. Judas comes forward to kiss Jesus, and they begin to realize what is happening. One of them even pulls out a sword and chops the ear of one of the men in the crowd off. And I can imagine Peter standing there among them, ready to live into his promise, to prison and to death. But Jesus stops him. He stops all of them. He says, enough of this. He heals the man's ear. And Jesus gives himself over to that crowd. Peter had been ready to fight. But now, he's only confused. The kingdom wasn't coming the way he thought it would. And so as we imagine this table, the table that the disciples sat at with Jesus, it's filled with confidence and certainty. And when we come to the table every week, we sit with them. And with them, we find our expectations upended. The kingdom is not ever what we think it's going to be. All right, now let's jump forward a couple thousand more years. This time in Federal Way, Washington. You don't even have to close your eyes to imagine this one. Now imagine, or don't, just look around. There's a group of people gathered together in a building off of Military Road South. Some of them came just a short distance to get there. Others traveled from miles around. Some of them came with joy in their hearts, some weary from a week of working, some with deep pain down beneath the surface. This group of people gathers to meet together every week. And there's not a universal joy or universal sadness about them. Each one comes bearing the realities of their own life. But there is at least one thing this group has in common. Every single one of them belongs. They sing songs, they read scriptures, and then every week their time culminates in the passing of plates with bread and juice. And at the very same hour that this group of people gather, there are others around the world doing the very same thing singing songs, reading scriptures, breaking bread. There are Presbyterians in the Midwest and Baptists in the South. There's a group of people worshiping together in a hotel in Uganda. I met them. There's small groups in underground house churches in China as well. And all of these people across the world are breaking bread together, worshiping God together. This table that we're talking about now is filled with different experiences, different languages. But every week when we come to the Lord's table together, we all sit down together 
and find unity in our diversity, we all find belonging. Now, finally, I want to take you to one more place in our little imaginary trip together. And this one is sometime in the future. But when it is, we don't really know. What we do know is told to us in Revelation 21. There's a city dressed like a bride descending out of heaven from God. In that city, there are people from every tribe and nation. Each one has their tears wiped from their eyes. Every sensation of pain, whether in heart or in body, is relieved and healed. And as they're gathered together, a voice resounds from above, Behold, I am making all things new. This holy city, this new community, is the bride of Christ. They are a people made new. In the presence of God, in this shining city, they gather around a banquet table to celebrate their union with Christ. It is a marriage feast. And as they gather around the table, a voice calls out. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let everyone who hears say, Come. Let everyone who is thirsty come. And they all raise their glasses and drink. This table is one of celebration and glory. And when we come to the table of the Lord, every week we sit at this very table and we find redemption and we find joy. So here we are. And we've kind of gone on this spiritual time-traveling journey together from the exodus in Egypt to the disciples at the Last Supper to the coming marriage feast of Christ. And yet here we are about to come to the table together. And when we do that, we sit in the presence of every single one of these that we have imagined together this morning. When we remember Jesus' death and proclaim his resurrection, we do this, just like it says, until he comes again.